Welcome to the HBG Bible Talks podcast, where we do simple, focused reading and discussion from God's Word, the Bible. This season, we are posting the recordings and Q&A from our HBG Bible Talks event in 2022 with Tim Bunting of West Harlem, New York, titled, How We Got the Bible. We'll go ahead and get to our, our, our next session here, though. We'll have a nice long break afterwards, so you can be situated there. Also, you might notice that some of my titles here are a little bit different than what you see in the flyer. The flyer is a bit more obvious what the messages are. These are a bit more specific to what I'm saying here, so... All right. Can we trust our Bibles? Can we trust the transmission of the Bibles? Well, to know if we can trust the Bible's accuracy to its original message today, you got to get to know the witnesses. You got to get to know the, the, the ancient copies and ancient manuscripts that we have in our possession today. Uh, this point, moving forward, we're going to take a more exclusively New Testament focus um, what we say kind of previously is Old and New Testament, but really there's a lot more we have to work with with the New Testament. Uh, so we're just going to narrow it down to that and, and just really focus on New Testament texts. So when I'm saying the Bible, probably it's more accurate to say the New Testament uh, in this context. And I think I'll mention is this with my podcast. So I have about 10 episodes um, that everything in my podcast is only what's found in my introductory lesson. So that's how much more in-depth that is going. I'm covering material here that is not in the podcast. The rest of this is not in the podcast yet, so I thought you know kind of the different uh, pace there. All right, so how can we know the original text is accurate? What, what did the original text say? That is our mystery to be solved. And we're familiar with solving mysteries. Not actually doing it, but watching TV about it, right? Um, when you're trying to solve a mystery, one of the things that is done is there are witnesses that saw these things transpire, and these witnesses provide testimony, and the jury or the judge or the detective or whoever hears the, the different testimony from different witnesses, compares and contrasts, tries to figure out which testimony is the most accurate. This guy's saying this thing, that guy's saying another thing. Well, which thing being said is more trustworthy? Well, to figure out whose testimony is more trustworthy, which witness is testimony? This guy says, well, I saw him kill Steve. And the other guy says, well, I, I saw him kill Steve. But the guy saying that is holding a, a knife with blood all over his shirt. Right? So you trust the other witness and his testimony more than the other guy. Well, it's really a similar process when it comes to determining the original message. The detective is your textual critic. You can be a textual critic if you want. You can be an investigator. What did the original text say in this verse? It's always verse by verse, word by word, not the whole New Testament at a time. What what was the original reading of this verse? That's the mystery to be solved. Well, you look at the witnesses, which are all these different New Testament documents. And 30 of the New Testament documents say it this way, reading A. A hundred say it this way, reading B, and a thousand something say it that way, reading C. So, all right, so here we have these different witnesses providing us different testimony of what the original actually said. The original didn't say all three, said one of these, or maybe none of these. So based off of the testimony we're receiving from these witnesses, these manuscripts, which is most likely to be 
the original. That's what we're trying to do here, right? But again, in order to know how trustworthy the testimony is, you got to know how trustworthy the witnesses are. So we got to look at the actual manuscripts themselves and figure out what, what can we know about these documents that will help us know how to view or consider the things that they say in those particular documents. That makes sense? All right. It's not too, too complicated. Um, where am I here? All right. So, all right. So some rules that apply when looking for good testimony. I'm trying to find good testimony, trustworthy testimony. What rules would I apply? Well, one rule is more witnesses make it better testimony. If there's 100 people who say, we saw it happen this way, and then there's one guy says, no, it wasn't me, <laughs> right? Well, the more witnesses make that testimony more believable than the one guy who says otherwise. That makes sense. Um, different kinds of witnesses are better. Well, if you've got you know, 30 guys and they say, oh yeah, this is what happened. And they're all part of the mob, right? Yeah, it was this thing, this thing, we didn't do it. Well, the fact that they're all in the same, you know, boat together, hmm, there might be some corroboration, right? There might be an agenda that they are protecting. But if you've got multiple people you know, the, the brother of the victim, some random guy walking down the street who happened to be there, you know, like very different witnesses um, with different backgrounds. There's no evidence of a common agenda. And so the difference in witnesses makes the, their united testimony more, more convincing there. High quality witnesses are better. You know, if this guy says, well, it happened like this, and I was drunk out of my mind at the time and it was happening, you know, well, I don't know how trust that trustworthy that testimony is. Or if this test, this guy says, you know, no, this is what happened, you know, but he's, you know, gone to jail for insurance fraud and things like that. <clears throat> I'm not, I'm not sure how trustworthy that is, but if there are, I don't know, educated uh, people, no criminal background, uh, you know, part of, school PTA or something. Uh, this sounds like more reliable, uh, higher quality witness. Finally, if you find testimony supported by all these categories, all right, that, that's how you're gonna find, um, you know, good, determined, good, trustworthy testimony. So same things with looking at the manuscripts and evaluating their variant readings. Is this variant reading supported by multiple manuscripts. If it's only a few manuscripts that say it and the rest all say the other, eh, maybe the majority in this case might be uh, the better testimony, the more accurate reading. Is it a reading supported by manuscripts from multiple regions? Uh, you can imagine how a textual variant can, can enter the text and then be copied and copied so that one difference is kind of I don't think propagated is the right word, but multiplied in a particular region. And then there's a whole different one in a different region. So if they're regionally exclusive, you know, uh, maybe it's just it got introduced here and that got introduced there. So it's hard to say. But what if it's a variation or a variant that is witnessed by manuscripts found in very different regions? Well, it's not exclusive to this one region where it got distributed. 
It appears in, in all different places. So that makes it uh, more reliable. There's a whole concept called text type, which we're not going to even really begin to talk about. It's one of the more complicated aspects of uh, textual criticism. Uh, it's a bit beyond me. I know what it is, and I can say things about it, but I don't really know enough to, to make good conclusions about it. I just hear what you're telling me. But text type is like text personalities. There are certain texts that take on certain kind of qualities. There is what's called the Alexandrian text type, and it is more concerted and concise. It's more likely to omit than to include. Then there's the Western text type. And this is more of your loosey-goosey, kind of, hey, cool guy, kind of, you know, uh, textual variety, way more likely to add stuff in and to clarify things and say, hey, you know, here's this thing there. So it's maybe a more unreliable uh, kind of kind of text. Then there's the Byzantine text form, which that came a lot later. And that's maybe more of like, you can imagine maybe a religious stoic who's, these are our rules. And so they had their text and boom, they stuck to it. And it's very, very uniform. But again, it came along much later, just kind of followed what they had in front of them at the time. And so if you've got a variation, if there is, for instance, an, an omission, and in the Alexandrian it's omitted because, well, they, they're more conservative, but in a Western text, it's also omitted. Man, even they didn't add it in there. There's corroboration. That shows a, a more trustworthy uh, reading there. So things like that we're going to talk about. Uh, easy one. You know, what makes a high-quality witness? One thing is if it's older, right? Or what if it's in the original language? Those make for high-quality uh, manuscripts and more accurate readings. And again, if you can support a variant reading with all of these, it's going to be a, a nice little slam dunk for you right there. So that's kind of how these rules uh, are going to apply. And these are the kinds of things we need to know about the manuscripts to know how to apply them to different variant readings. The trustworthiness of a variant reading depends on the trustworthiness of the manuscript or manuscripts that support it. So hopefully that makes sense, right? Cool. Cool. So let's get to know some of the manuscripts that are available to us. Another key word is extant. I think that's how you pronounce that. Extant. Extant means it's remaining. It's with us today. Uh, an extant manuscript, you can, you can get your hands on. Um, if it's not extant, that means it's lost in time. So the originals are not extant. We don't, we don't have those. But we do have extant copies, uh, you know, physical copies with us today. So let's talk about these extant copies here. Uh, you've got papyri documents. You've got unsealed documents. And I actually Googled that word today, and Google says it's pronounced uh, unsealed. And then Stephen told me he says unsealed. <laughs> so I, I can't tell you the actual pronunciation of that. Well, just to say unsealed with confidence, uh, but if you find this otherwise, come back and let me know. Uh, there are minuscules, there are lectionaries, and then there are citations. We'll talk about each of these individually. You'll see a lot of different numbers thrown around, but you're always going to see there are over 5,000 extant, ancient, Greek, New Testament manuscripts. Right? Of all, the, all the New Testament manuscripts in the original Greek language from ancient times, you're going to have over 5,000 uh, 5, of those. Now, that doesn't mean we've got 5,000 Old Testament, New Testament, beginning to end in the original languages from like 300 AD. That's not what that means. Some of these are going to be from, you know, 10,000 uh, year or nine, you know, yeah, year 9,000 later, ninth century later. Some of these are only going to be fragments, a couple of pieces of a couple of verses. 
So I'm not going to be complete Bibles, but, you know, so that, that, that's kind of puts that number in uh, perspective a little better. And then we'll also talk quickly about some ancient translations we have. So let's talk about these uh, ancient witnesses, these New Testament witnesses. First, let's talk about papyri. Uh, the papyrus New Testament manuscripts are named, are identified as being papyrus New Testament documents because they're written on papyrus. So that's how they're cataloged. These are all the papyrus New Testament documents. Um, let me see here. I, uh, I had to skip through the, the mediums of the originals and copies. There might be some information about the materials used that I want to bring up here. I'm not sure. Um, but um, so there's the, so we have a lot of New Testament documents written on papyri. We've got about 150 New Testament papyri. Some are scraps. Uh, some are a whole epistle. A lot are somewhere in between. Um, these were all discovered really 1900s and later. So the papyri are new to the scene in terms of your English Bibles. So if you're buying a more modern translation, really 1950 and after, um, your translation has been impacted by these newly discovered papyri New Testament documents. So that's pretty cool. Uh, these make up the oldest of the Greek manuscripts yet discovered. They date anywhere from the second to the fifth century. So now remember when we say second century, we're talking 100 AD and later. Second, you think 200. No, no. Second is 100 and later. So the originals were written in the, in the first century. We've got pieces of copies in the second century. We're going to see that's really unheard of in any other ancient document. Um, we have all New Testament books represented in papyri, except for 1st and 2nd Timothy and 1st and 2nd John. Um, the strength of the papyri manuscripts are that they are very old, right? They are very old documents. And so chronological proximity to the original brings a lot of weight to their testimony. So it's very, very valuable. Even when you've got a scrap, right? You're looking at a scrap in front of you. What, what use is that? You can't even read much there at all. Even when you have a small portion of papyri New Testament document, the reason that can be so useful is it can date a reading. So if we've been looking at some uncials from 400, let's say it this way, but then all of a sudden you find a papyri from 230, and it says it the exact same way, that means, okay, this reading is at least this old, right? So you can date when readings uh, uh, were found in scripture. So it can be very useful in that way, which confirms hasn't hasn't changed. You know, all the change is going to happen in these first 300 years. So the papyri show, well, not necessarily like we can verify with these scraps here, it's it's reading the same ways and these documents that come, come a couple hundred years later. That makes sense. Weaknesses of the papyri, very fragile. You know, all the papyri that I, that I think, all the papyri we found are all found in Egypt. Why? Egypt is dry, and papyri can, can survive in a more dry climate. There would have been countless papyri New Testament documents all throughout all different regions, and but they've all, any that would have survived have all rotted and, and been destroyed by the natural forces of the world. So, you know, they're, they're very, uh, uh, very um, fragile, so we've lost who knows how many. That's why we have incomplete books and pages and fragments, but also it's a very limited geography. They're all coming out of Egypt. 
And they might not have originally been written in Egypt, probably, but not necessarily. But I don't know if we would know that. Um, so there's a limited geographical representation in the papyri. Uh, so that's uh, a weakness there. Uh, real quickly, there are what is called the Rylands papyri, papyrus, papyrus. That's what you're looking at here. It's about the size of a credit card, right? So the small little scrap, some verses of John. Um, this is the oldest New Testament manuscript yet discovered. And it's dated anywhere from 100 to 150 AD. You know, John's gospel is likely written, you know, after the others. I don't know, like, when do you think John was written? Late first century. Late first century, right? And we have a copy early second century, right? And so it gets harder and harder for skeptics to push. You know, we would love to say, oh, John, with all of his clearly defined doctrine about the divinity of Christ, second century. Nope. We're back to first century, right? So it's very, 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 very valuable. Even though it's a small scrap of it, it supports John's existence from way before that. Um, the sigla for papyrus, and sigla refers to the symbol used to shorthand identify it, will be this cute little calligraphy P followed by a number. They'll have names like the Rhino papyrus based on who discovered them or who paid a lot of money to have them or something. But in your textual criticism, you're looking for the P66, P75, P whatever. And that will tell you which specific manuscript it is. Cool. All right, then there are unseals. Unseal refers to the writing style. So you've got Greek up there, and this uh, writing form is an older form of, I forget, it's this classic Greek. I forget what kind of Greek this is. Koine, yeah, Koine Greek, thank you. Uh, this is the older form of Koine Greek, and it is all caps, no punctuation, no spaces. Uh, they'll even divide a word mid-line. like line. So it ends three letters, and the next line it's the rest of the four letters there. Um, it's actually very similar to Hebrew. Hebrew is written in the same kind of way. So there's this uh, unsealed Koine Greek. Now, the papyri are also written in unsealed form. But they're categorized separately based on the, the medium, the material. So papyri are unsealed, but we call them papyri because they're, they're in their own category for that reason. And so the unseals here, named by their writing style, a more, uh, more ancient writing style, these are your primary sources for, the, for, under, for, for knowing the New Testament text. Papyri are, are so important, but we don't have the entire New Testament in papyri. But we have many, many, many copies of the New Testament in, in Unseal. Um, the, they are not as old as papyrus. Some are older than, than some papyri. But in general, they're not as old as papyrus. But they're anywhere from the 3rd to 9th centuries AD. Uh, we've got around 320 of these guys. Uh, the first 46 are the more critical, uh, the more important in the textual criticism process. Uh, because of their age, um, you know, those are older. Um, what else do I want to say here? Um, so the, these, um, papyri, uh, these documents are written on what is called vellum. We mentioned vellum briefly before. Uh, you've heard of parchment. If you watch you know, Harry Potter stuff, they're always writing on parchment. Uh, parchment and vellum are basically the same thing. There's different arguments about what makes them different, but vellum, parchment, same thing. If you want to sound cooler, say vellum, because that's more a fancy word. 
Um, but vellum parchment are made with animal skins, stretched animal skins. So that makes them way more durable. So that's why we have so many extant, you know, vellum unseals with us today because they just, they can survive. They can last better. Um, what's also cool about unseals is that you can, uh, about vellum is you can erase. You can actually scrape away the original writing and then write over it. However, when you scrape it away, it still leaves the indentation of the original writing. And so when you write something over it, uh, you can visibly see, but then with you know, uh, technological uh, assistance, you can really scan and find out what was originally written there. There are what is called palimpsests, where palimpsest is, it was originally a New Testament document that some guy scraped it off and then wrote Twilight New Moon on top of it. And so we have it, we're like, oh, great, Twilight. Wait a second, there's a New Testament here. And then you can go back and find the New Testament. Um, unseals also uh, include um, marginal notes and notations. Those are really interesting. Scribe says, I don't know, it said this at a different time, and they write these kinds of things in. Uh, they make corrections. They won't replace you know, the New Testament text, but they'll erase it, and they'll fix it and put a better version of the writing on top of the original, and we're able to access all of all the different readings. So you can have a third, a fifth, and a 12th century reading in one document. So that's pretty cool to think about. Um, blah, 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 blah. Um, uh, some weakness is that the unsealed writing form being more crude, it can be more difficult for scribes to copy. I mean, you can imagine if in English you only had capital letters and no punctuation and no spaces, and you had to sit there and copy that. There's a reason we invented these kinds of, uh, you know, tools and devices to make, you know, for, for text to be more clear to us. So the scribal copying of unseal can have more problems in the process. So that's a weakness of it, but not a, not a very big issue. Um, let's see here. We're going to see the sigla for unseals later, but they can be represented by a single... Um, Hebrew, Greek, or um, English letter. There's also a numerical um, a categorizing of these. We'll look at that at the end of the lesson. So amongst the unseals, there are the three most significant unseals. Uh, these three here are going to provide the vast majority of your modern English text. And these are really the, the texts that we rely on the most, the foundation of the accurate original reading. They are as follows. There is a Sinaiticus. A Sinaiticus is represented with a 0-1, and this is a Hebrew Aleph, right? the Hebrew A, basically. And so if you see that symbol, you know it's talking about the Sinaiticus. This guy is uh, dates back to 350 AD, so very ancient, very old. It is a near-complete Bible. Um, you, um, it, it's a near, a near complete Bible. The majority of the Old Testament, uh, contains the, it's the only unseal that contains the entire New Testament. It also includes the Episcopal, Epistle of Barnabas and the Shepherd of Hermes. So there's a couple of additional books included. Um, this text includes lots of corrections, uh, and changes, uh, made from the fourth to 12th century. You can actually see some of the uh, annotations made by the scribes throughout the years. The original wouldn't do those annotations, most likely. That would be added in later. So that's curious. Um, it's, it's helpful with all the corrections. You can begin to date when certain 
changes might have been added to the text through time. Right? So here it is here, and here it is different there. You say, okay, so this variant kind of started around this time, so that's, it's useful in that kind of way. Um, we'll keep moving here. Then you've got the Alexandrinus. Um, that is labeled as 02, or the English letter A. This is from 400 to 440 AD, so a little bit younger than the previous. This is also a near-complete Bible. It includes some Old Testament apocryphal text, 3rd and 4th Maccabees, as well as Psalm uh, 151 and the 14 Odes, which I'm not even familiar with that one. It's uh, nearly the entire New Testament. First chapter, uh, 25 chapters of Matthew are missing, however. You see that a lot of the beginnings or ends of books fall off, fall out, uh, or the beginning or the end of a binding within the book. Those are the pages that will go. So those are lost to us. Um, it also includes uh, First and Second Clement. So you see some early Christian writings uh, that were considered very useful and wanting to be distributed. So you find those included in these books as well, these codices. Um, uh, then there is the Vaticanus, and this is probably the most important of all New Testament, well, actually Old and New Testament Greek manuscripts. Uh, this is the, the number one source for our New Testament uh, text today. Uh, it's labeled with a 03 or the English letter B. It dates from 300 to 325 AD, so this is a very ancient document. Um, its readings have been confirmed with some papyri, P66 and P75. Those date much, much earlier. And so, again, this, you see this uniformity in the text through these mysterious first centuries. And so more papyri that show up and really stick to the same text form say this text form has existed really from very, very, very ancient uh, times, very close to the original. So that is useful to us. Um, any other notes I'd like to say about this? Um, cool. Now, you can imagine how much could be said about these documents. This is a very, very, very brief rundown of these. But if you really, really, really want to get into textual criticism, this is the kind of stuff you're trying to figure out. You know, what can I know about these documents? You know, and how they read and, and what they're like and so forth. So a lot of good information to get into. We're just briefly skimming the surface. Um, oh, man, we got a wild card. Right? One of my favorite uh, documents is Codex Bezia. Codex Bezia is uh, 05, or the letter D. This guy, he shows up to the party all the time. He's like, hey, guys, he always comes late. He's like, hey, what about me? He kind of shows up like this. It's a bilingual document, it's Greek and Latin. Uh, as far as Latin, we, we hear Latin and Christian stuff combined a lot. You know, Latin was not an original language of the Bible, but Latin was the Roman language. And with the growth of Christianity in the Roman Empire or you know, the Roman Catholic Church, that's why Latin becomes such a Christian, religious-y kind of language. So here's a bilingual version of the New Testament text. Or actually, actually it's a copy of Acts and what else? Acts and something. Um, Oh, the Gospels and Acts. So it doesn't include the epistles, just the Gospels and Acts. But it is, you know, both two languages here. So two versions of the same text, which is curious. It's very loose. We mentioned the Western text type. This guy, you know, he defines the Western text type. The Book of Acts, apparently, this is stuff that I have to accept from other people. The Book of Acts is 10% longer 
than any other representation of the book. So that's a lot of additions. Now, what does that mean? Out of every 100 words, you've got one extra word. So it's not that crazy. But in terms of comparison to other texts, a lot more additions here than other texts. I actually have an English translation of the Codex Bezia of the book of Acts. I've been really interested to get, get read through it and figure out, oh, man, what crazy stuff is in here. I kind of quit halfway through. It got, got a little bit, I don't want to say boring. It's a book of Acts. But it, it didn't have all the interesting stuff I was kind of looking for. So I need to go back through and figure out how different is the book really. But um, there you go. Now, because it's so unique and its variants um, are not really represented in other texts, it becomes a pretty interesting X factor into textual criticism, especially in this way. If there is some reliable manuscripts that omit and some reliable manuscripts that include a word or a path or a phrase, but Bezia doesn't include it. Wait, Bezia doesn't have it. Bezia, he, he'll, he'll include anything. If he doesn't have it in there, then that's a pretty strong voice in the omission of that passage or that phrase, uh, more so than the others. Does that, that make sense? This is the kind of stuff that you're going to be thinking through as you try to do this. So hopefully that makes a little bit of sense. And again, you, you, maybe you can feel this very, 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 very surface level. But wow, there's so much we can get into and look at, equip ourselves in this process. Um, all right, so those are the unseals. Helpful for us to consider there. After the unseals, then we've got the minuscules. Unseals are cataloged as unseals because of their, their writing form. Minuscules are cataloged as minuscules for their writing form. Can you see the difference in the form of text? This is a cursive writing form. They're also called the cursives. So now you've got spaces. Um, you, I, I, don't, I don't know if you have capitalization. I'm not sure about that. Maybe you do. I can keep but you've got more stuff introduced into the way you write the text. It's a more advanced form of writing. This form of writing didn't really come around, come around until like the ninth century. So all the unseals pre-ninth century, and part of the way you date the unseals is if it's an unseal, then you know, well, it has to be within this time. And if it's a cursive, then it has to be after that time. So ninth to 15th century, um, if you have a Greek uh, or if you have a... Um, interlinear Bible or a Greek New Testament, it's going to use the cursive writing form, not the unseal writing form. Um, we've got, you see all different numbers and different, different sources, but what I have here is we have 2,911 minuscules. So when we talk about 5,000 Greek New Testament documents, 150 are papyri, 320 are unseals, and these are going to be the most important documents. Almost 3,000 are minuscules from 9th century and later. That puts the 5,000 into a little bit better context. Now, we're going to compare that to other ancient documents and realize most of the other ancient documents are represented by 5 or 6 or 20 documents about this many years later. They don't even have all these earlier documents like we have, but here are the minuscules. Um, they are catalog cataloged by a four-digit number, or if all the unseals are zero in a number, all the minuscules is just a number with a single digit or oftentimes four digits since there are thousands of them. Um, their weakness is the fact that they are so, so young. 
They come much later by comparison. Um, their strengths are their sheer number. I mean, again, that's like a, a lot. Uh, they are big documents. A lot of the minuscules, you got entire compilations, entire collections of books because they're so young and so well preserved. And at that time, the treatment of the, of the actual physical copies was, was, was with much more veneration. Um, let me see here. Uh, Tim, just for clarity, the, the Rylands papyrus oh. is left over up there. You might want to clarify that's not the Rylands papyrus. Thank you, good sir. See, that's how variants end up in the text. Did it on purpose, right? <laughs> um, another strength of the minuscules is they are very uniform. I mean, they follow a very, very, very close pattern. And the reason for that is that they are so much younger. By that time, Christian scribes had a system. This is a text, and we're sticking with it. So that's strong for it to be so uniform, but can you also feel the weakness of it being so uniform? This is what it is. What about the other things? What about things earlier? Oh, this is what it is. All right, so those are some strengths and weaknesses with the minuscules. Uh, and the minuscules are a, a big part of where our traditional English text came from. Some of the bonuses, you've got lectionaries. Lectionaries were formal documents made by Christians who were going to recite passages during services. So you make a very fancy copy of the text, a big copy, and you would read that for the assembly. So you've got these lectionaries. Uh, they're nicely adorned, very decorative. Uh, these would come later. They date for around 10th century. Um, we've got about 2,000 lectionaries, they say, so a lot there. Uh, another, oh, um, okay, I don't have it in my notes here. Another cool X factor is early Christian quotations. Oh, it is right early citations. Uh, early citations. So here's the text, but you've got preachers preaching and writing letters and sending letters and so forth. And what do they do? In their writings, in their sermons, they quote scripture, just, just like we would do. And we have a lot of these uh, copies of their writings, and a lot of them are very, very old. I mean, again, we have quotations dating back to the second, third, fourth centuries. Now, quotations in these letters are not as reliable as copies of the Greek manuscripts. They shouldn't be. When I quote scripture, you hear me sometimes, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, that, that would happen. But it can be very important to figure out if a reading was supported earlier, or if there's a variation, sometimes a variation gets into the text because of what an early church father said about it, and then that gets put to the text later. So that's a very big X factor. Um, I'm going to give you some numbers. I don't know how much you can trust these numbers, but according to one scholar, he can cite 86,000 quotes from before 325 AD, and can, uh, which can reconstruct a complete uh, Bible. Another source says seven major first century Christian scholars from those. We have 19,368, that's very specific, gospel quotes, 1,352 quotes from Acts, 14,000 Pauline epistle quotes, uh, and some other things. Again, I don't know how much those numbers can really be verified. Some stuff gets bloated, um, really trying to support the reliability of the text. But the point is, wow, we got a lot of early Christian quotes 
And um, I, I imagine we can re reconstruct an entire New Testament just based off quotes alone. So that's a very important factor in textual criticism as well. Cool. All right, keep going here. Then there are ancient translations. So it's, it's, it's weaker because it's not the original language. But again, some of these translations are very, very old. You know, we will rest and rely on an ancient Latin translation from 400 AD more than you trust a Greek minuscule from the 13th century. And we've got Latin translations, Syriac translations, Slavic, Gothic, Ethiopic, Coptic, Armenian translations, Georgian translations. Imagine, no, not, not the state, right? There are a lot of y'alls in there, right? Uh, and again, a lot of these translations are very, very old. And so they become a very vital second source, secondary source to the original uh, writings. And so that's not including the Greek. You, you add these guys into the mix and you're, you're talking lots and lots and lots of copies here. Um, I, I have here, it says 15,000 total ancient translation manuscripts. I don't know if it's that much, but it's probably more than 50, right? So, so a lot there. Now, to, to put this all in perspective, we need to do a comparison. You know, we, we always watch the Olympics. Well, that, that guy's pretty impressive what he's doing there, spinning around and things. Right, but then you put your 45-year-old uncle next to him and say, you do the same thing. Like, oh, okay. Right? That is the, the, his level is, is that far beyond. Well, let's compare what we said about the New Testament manuscripts with what we know about other ancient manuscripts. Here's some names, uh, and this, this is uh, from a book from, I think, the 70s. Some of this might be a little bit outdated. There might be some more manuscripts discovered with these ancient uh, sources. I don't know. But there's some, there's some big names here. Caesar. Uh, is that Caesar, Caesar, I guess? I don't know. Um, you've got Plato. We know that guy. Tacitus, Pliny, uh, Sophocles, uh, Euripides, Aristotle. Some big names. <laughs> now, Look at what we know about their documents. So Tacitus, for instance, his would have been written for this uh, around 100 AD. And the earliest copy we have of his is from 1100 AD. We've got 20 copies of those. Some difference in his writing that we have with us from 1000 AD. So you're talking 1,000 to 900 years difference from the original written in 100 AD. New Testament documents before 400 AD. And yet his is not represented until 1,000 years later. Uh, Aristotle. His documents were more ancient than New Testament texts, 384 or 322 BC. Again, 1100 AD, a 1400-year gap, and we've got five original Aristotle documents. We're talking a lot about Aristotle. I don't really know anything about him, but you know, I can say his name. Big guy, big name. Five of his uh, copies of his original documents exist today. I mean, you look at all the numbers over there. We've, we've got a, a handful, sometimes less than you could count on two hands, copies of these, of these ancient documents. Okay. Well, of the, so the largest amount of manuscripts is 2,000 with Demosthenes. The smallest gap is 750 years. Let's go back to our New Testament representation. My numbers change here a little bit. Over 5,800 complete or fragments of Greek manuscripts cataloged. 10,000 Latin manuscripts. 9,300 manuscripts of other ancient translations. Uh, our oldest fragment, conservatively, is dated 50 years after the original. I'm almost, I'm, I'm more than halfway to 50, right? So can't be that much. Uh, we have a complete New Testament 
not including some, some lost pages. 350 AD, 250 years from the original. Complete collection of not one document, not one book. We're talking 27 books represented fully 250 years later in the original language. It's, it's not really a comparison. It's not fair to compare. And yet, which documents are getting most scrutiny and attack? Who says, well, yeah, Aristotle is a smart guy, but you can't trust uh, the translations of his writings because who knows how much that's been changed over the years. Who says that? Well, nobody cares. <laughs> I guess that was cool, but we're not like hanging our lives on his teachings. The New Testament has a way bigger impact on the world that we live in globally. Much greater implications and ramifications. People have a lot more reason to trust in or to deny the New Testament writings. So it gets way more attention, way more criticism, which if you're looking objectively at the facts before us, there is an ancient document that does not deserve scrutiny. Yeah, we should scrutinize to find the original. But skepticism and attack, New Testament, if, if the New Testament is in that category, then no ancient document has any trustworthiness whatsoever. Right? That's the reality. Now, we're going to look at some challenging things with the transmission of the text. There's questions, right? And if you need to study enough to figure out, ooh, what happens here? But yeah, from a skeptical standpoint, there's, it's not fair for us to, to doubt the trustworthiness of the New Testament text, given all the witnesses and all the testimony that we can sift through. Make sense? So that, that should impact us in a pretty big way. Cool. Now we got a little bit more time here. Um, so do we have enough witnesses, different kinds of witnesses, high quality witnesses? I suggest to you that we do. All right, what do we do with all of this? Right, I said a lot of cool things. You know, what can you do with this information? Let's get a little bit practical here. So you want to find some resources. And I've actually got um, some physical copies of some of these books that I have uh, on the, I'm going to show you on the screen in a second. I'm here with you. You can take a look at them. You're going to want to find resources that provide you information about the manuscripts. You can't go to the library and say, oh, here's papyrus. No, you, you got to have someone tell you all the papyrus. Here's what it is, right? So here's a quick reference I have. You see the sigla, P6, P8, P10, down to P27. Tells you their content. E stands for Gospels. I don't know why. I guess uh, the evangelist. Uh, a is Acts, P is uh, Pauline epistles. Oh, and also included in E is the, they call it the Catholic epistles, so the non-Pauline epistles are included in E as well. Um, R is Revelation, Jeremiah himself. It says where they are currently. I guess you can look up those libraries and maybe find scans of them. And more importantly, it gives you the rough date of when that manuscript was originally written. So you have these resources that says, okay, Basic information about this manuscript. Uh, good, I'm sorry. That's chiquitito, right? Very small. But now we got references of the unseals. Way more unseals. So you're going to have more information here. But you can here see the sigla. Here's our Aleph, our A, B, C, D. You jump over here. You've got, uh, sorry, we're shaking a little bit. 
Oh, here you've got some Greek letters. Looking around the English alphabet, we jumped over to Greek. Uh, so some of these are, the sigma is a Greek letter, uh, but they also have numerical categorization as well. So you'll see sometimes by number, eventually they drop the letter system and just use the number system to catalog these uh, content, where they are, and again, boom, date. So you need these kind of resources to tell you which manuscripts have which qualities. Same thing with the minuscules. As I said before, they're represented by just a number, no zero in front of it, just a number. Usually a four-digit number, since there's thousands, they have four digits to represent them. Um, they, we don't, doesn't mention where, where they currently exist, that's critical. Now we got our lectionaries, ancient translations, and early quotes. L, followed by a number, is the catalog of the lectionary. It tells you the content, the date. See, these are much later. Uh, ancient translations. So IT, you think of Italy, that is our Latin translations, because Rome, right? Um, and you've got the IT and then little subletters next to them. Because again, well, it's this translation, but this version of that translation, this document of that translation. And these little insignias here get really confusing. Because sometimes they say, well, it's, it's in the Vaticanus, but it's a correction from the 12th century. So it's the sign of the Vaticanus with a little insignia to say, well, it's in that text, but it's a 12th, uh, 12th century correction. So it gets a little bit, ooh, right? Hard to keep track of it all. Uh, but you see all these different translations here. Uh, then over there, you see early quotes. It's got the name of the, the church father and when he lived. So he must have written it sometime, or must have quoted this text in this particular reading sometime around then. Right? So we need this kind of information. Um, and I got this information from my the Greek New Testament. This is from the United Bible Societies. There's the USBN. Uh, here's my little pullout, right? It has a little bit more detailed appendix in the beginning, but then you have this little pullout with your, your glasses and all that stuff, right? So that's uh, pretty critical, pretty important. Um, but you also want to have more information about at least some of these manuscripts. Got a cool book here. It's, uh, it's actually a really cool book. It's the early manuscripts and modern translations of the New Testament. Uh, of the New Testament. Um, it doesn't say anything about papyrus on the cover, which is silly because this is all about the papyrus, about the papyri. And one thing he does is he just gives you, again, this is very basic information about this particular papyrus. Uh, it was discovered in this area. It contains specifically that material. What's up? Oh, turn off. You can go see that in Philly. Guys, go see it in Philly. Um, yeah, the, the year uh, it was originally written, textual character. This, the copyist of P1 seems to have faithfully followed a very reliable exemplar and says a bunch of stuff. That's the stuff. I, I'm not going to be able to figure that out. Do I trust what this guy says about it? You know, I'll have to trust him and then look at some other sources. So I can't come up with that, but maybe I can take his conclusions or other people's conclusions and use their conclusions in my evaluation of variant readings. So you need that kind of information as well. Um, then you need a, uh, a resource that is going to show you which variant reading is represented by which manuscripts. 
So this one up here, it's, it's the same book here, the Greek New Testament. Um, I don't read Greek or know anything about Greek, by the way, and there's still ways that you can make use of this information. So this is Acts. It says Acts, actually, I mean Acts, Acts 8. And so here's the relevant text for this example. So you got verse 36 and all that. And you got verse 38 and all that. Did you guys notice something curious? Where is verse 37? Right? We don't know. Um, this is what you're going to find in your tradi traditional English Bible. Uh, New King James will have it like this. NASB has it in uh, brackets here. ESV, NIV probably doesn't have this verse, though. And when the Ethiopian wants to get baptized, Philip says, well, you can if you believe. And then they, they did that. So that's verse 37. So the omission or the inclusion of verse 37, that's the variant reading that we would be investigating. So over on the right, it tells you which manuscripts represent which reading. And this is a pretty big one, so it's a lot of information, whereas some is just a few little thingies. So you see the little 36 here in the top left. That's the verse we're talking about. And it says, one variant reading omits verse 37 entirely. You got uh, P, what is it, P45, uh, I can't read on my screen, P45, P74, so two ancient papyrus, and you would look, when were those, what years were those guys from? Then you see all the unsealed. Okay, so um, Sinaiticus says it this way. Uh, Alexandrinus says it this way. The Vaticanus says it this way. So the three big dogs, they're all in agreement here. Um, then you've got some other unsealed. Uh, you see that the uh, zero in numbers are more unsealed. Then down here, now you've got minuscules and curses. Uh, you've got translations there, the Vulgate, the BG, the Syriac, the Coptic. Then you've got some early quotations that don't have it. What do you do? You go back to your resources to figure out when were these written, right? what, what time frame am I, am I looking at here? Then you have another variant that, that adds verse 37. And it's represented by some of these minuscules. Translation or two there, right? But then you've also, it's up some um, trans, translation. But then you've also got different variations of the inclusion. So it's, it's not like yes or no, it's no, and then this version, that version, and that version of that verse. So does that all come into our picture trying to determine what the original said? And then you see here, the little letter A, that's, oops, Oh, man. Well, forget it. I can't get it right now. That's our textual critic saying we can grade our certainty of its omission with a letter A. If it's a C, mm, yeah, we think it's omitted. A says it was omitted. That's your textual critic saying this is our the certainty of our conclusion that's being made. So hopefully that makes it a little bit more practical for you. You also want a Greek interlinear uh, New Testament. Because uh, that's how you're going to decipher the Greek up there. It says the Greek says this, blah, 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 but you don't even know what that says. You can find the Greek words and you can recognize them and see what the English comparable word is. You'll find Theos, God, and recognize that pretty quickly. So that's how you kind of navigate uh, very crudely some of the Greek. I can do that. You can do that too if you, if you take the time. You don't have to know Greek to do this. Um, so that's cool too. Boom. All right, that's our second session. And I, oops. Well, a little bit longer than I was supposed to. Thank you guys for your attention. I know that because I Googled it right after I read that question. <laughs> it's a good question. No. Um, 
Good question to ask. I don't know how important it is in our textual criticism process to know where it is today. But again, I don't know how important all this is, but it's very interesting to study the history of these ancient copies and really to figure out all the crazy things that happened with them through time until we finally got our, you know, our modern our, our English hands on them. Like people would suppress and hide and not allow people to view them, not allow people to translate them. There was a great suppression of some of these ancient copies. It's like, how, how could that be? People who are trying to find these documents and, and make them available were, you know, criminalized and stuff. It's craziness. So looking at where they are today, where they can be found in their history, very curious. There's probably some interesting lessons to learn along the way there. So it's a good question. Um, this question says, why is verse 37 omitted in some versions? So that's the verse we had up on the board as our case study. Uh, and so why is it omitted in some versions? We're going to know that more specifically in our third lesson right after lunch break. So I'll be back for that. Uh, but short answer is it's omitted in some verses because it became abundantly clear. It's a very weakly supported variant reading. Uh, it shows up in Greek documents very late. Um, all the other very reliable witnesses do not have it. And so that becomes one of your like easy slam dunks into, you know, what's the original reading here? Now, the question is, if it was so obvious that shit didn't belong, then why is it such a traditional verse in our English Bibles. That's a different question, and we're going to look at that as well and figure out how did our traditional English text come to us? And then when there are some other later modern translations, why do they differ from that? Uh, and so a lot of these more well-known variations are a result of um, a weaker source of manuscripts providing our traditional English text but then later scholars finding more reliable sources are coming up with a more reliable English source. So even that, that variant is huge, a whole verse, includes some kind of doctrine and confession. Um, we're going to see that's, that's not an issue at all because of how easy it is to know whether or not that verse uh, is part of the original or not. So hopefully that helps. Uh, another question kind of related, are most variants as extensive as Acts 8.37? or more limited to spelling or articles and so forth. Good question. Yeah, that, that's a big deal. To have a whole verse included, that's that's, like, whoa, that's one of your, your, your big time things going on. Um, most, the vast, vast, vast majority of variants are orthographical mistakes and inconsequential things like that, uh, or a change of a word or two, uh, but to have a whole verse, uh, that's that's not very that's not really the most common kind of example of variant reading we're talking about. Uh, we'll also about that in the third lesson. Um, this question is about how do you handle questions regarding which books are canon? Canon means which books are accepted as they should they belong in the Bible or not? That's our fourth lesson. That's a that's a different discussion. What I'm not quite as qualified to answer. Uh, I've done my research, though. I have some things I think are helpful to say about that. But that's really a very related, but also completely separate issue, which books belong in the text. Um, and I think with some, some good, you know, diligent study, you can come up with a lot of information about that. Um, and so I'll try to present some of that to you. But it's mostly what we're going to realize 
the formation of the canon wasn't a bunch of guys with funny hats who says, okay, I don't like what this book says, get rid of it. Uh, this book is going to help us to oppress people. Let's include that one. And boom, there you go. Uh, the canon was essentially formed naturally through time. And then the guys with the funny hats said, let's just make it official. This is, this is what we're going with here. Um, and all these lost books said, oh, these didn't make it into the Bible. We're going to figure out why they didn't make it into the Bible. Uh, and it's kind of the same reason why certain athletes don't make it to the Hall of Fame. Uh, <laughs> inability or their you know, steroids. Um, here's another good question. How would you answer critics who believe Matthew and Luke are variants of the Epistle of Mark? Great question. That kind of goes back to our first lesson where we briefly talked about authorship. Authorship, again, it's not, that's not textual criticism. Like the canon, it's a very related, separate topic. And again, one I'm not as qualified to talk about. Just Smeltzer, he's been a good source uh, for that. But I think in general, we need to realize there is a different approach to these questions. Skeptics are saying the whole thing's fake. And, you know, here are these guys. They're just copying off of each other and, you know, making their own versions of it. Ha, ha, ha. Well, when Luke wrote Luke... He said, Theophilus, you know, it, it's very fitting, you know, it's a couple of decades after the coming uh, resurrection of Christ and epistles and the gospels being spread. Luke says, you know, I think it's appropriate for us to get a pretty systematic recording of the events of the life of Christ and also the history of the church. So he does that. And he tells us different sources that he you know, he, he, he spoke with and worked with eyewitnesses to get this information down accurately. He also mentions that others had done so before him. You think Luke ever had his hands on a copy of the Book of Mark? Yeah. You think some of the things in Mark impacted what and how Paul uh, Luke wrote his gospel? Yeah. I mean, if Luke is using Paul as a source, why can't he use the writings of Mark as a source? So what's what's the issue with these similarities here? You know, and then Luke says, oh, yeah, but this thing also happened because I know that this guy, Paul told me this thing or that thing or I have this inspiration. So you just don't have to have such a skeptical viewpoint of these kinds of things. It's the same information, just two different ways of looking at it. And you realize, well, we don't have to say, that, well, these kinds of similarities mean that the whole thing was just copied and fabricated. Like, well, no, like they can, they can use each other's resources. That's a natural uh, part of the process. It doesn't preclude the, uh, the possibility of inspiration on top of that. So, I don't know. Cool. Those are our questions. I like the ones that I can Google. <laughs> 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 any, any other questions? Anything else? Anyone says? Oh, yes, sir. What about the apocrypha, uh, the seven books of the Bible, the type of books that are not in the, uh, our Bibles that are in the uh, Catholic Bible or whatever? Yeah. Uh, very good question. So that goes back to the canon. Now, that's the canon of the Old Testament as opposed to the canon of the New Testament. Uh, my discussion of the canon is to focus more exclusively on the New Testament. So specifically, it won't go back to that, but the same kind of principles are going to apply to Old Testament canon. Now, there are a lot of apocryphal texts. Uh, you get the Book of Enoch, the Bell and the Dragon. You've got all sorts of stuff. So a bunch of these different ones 
Seven of them are included in Catholic Bibles, uh, including 1st, 2nd, 3rd, Maccabees, Tobit, Esdras, some others. Um, so what about that? Well, it's important for us to know that Jewish, you know, the Jewish mindset of scriptures is the 39 books that we are familiar with. In some ways, the Jews would have been at a better position to know which books were scripture in that category and which books were not. Well, then when you have a bunch of Gentile Christians and they're now being introduced to Old Testament scriptures, well, they're also being introduced to a lot of books that were being circulated, like the book of Enoch, you know, that didn't exist when Enoch, hadn't been around as long as Enoch has been, but they're introduced to these books as well. And some would be more easily dismissed as being kind of wacky, uh, but others, you know, like Maccabees, I mean, that can follows, you know, biblically related history, you know, read Maccabees and say, ah, this is a bunch of posh. No, like it's, it's good information. Or Ezra, which I think is parallel to Ezra and Nehemiah and so forth. And so maybe some of the earlier Gentile Christians didn't have a strong a distinction of Old Testament scripture versus these other related biblical texts. Um, and even first century Christians, there was a natural, but not as hard of a distinction between New Testament scripture and a very good epistle they classified written by a trustworthy brother, Clement. And so they'll add those into these ancient codices as well, and then the lines became more distinguished later on. So, so basically, I mean, the evidence that we see from a from, uh, Jewish standpoint, from New Testament quotations of Old Testament books, from examples of, of which books were compiled and which were not, uh, those are kind of things that would make us put the 39 books in one category and these other seven in the category of the other apocryphal texts. Read, read First Maccabees, by the way. That's a good book. Um, it's important history spoken of through prophecy in Daniel. Um, we hope this lesson was helpful to you. If you're enjoying what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, leave us a rating or review so we can reach more people. If you'd like to study the Bible with us, please reach out 717-585-0949. You can email us at capitalcitychristians at gmail.com. Or for more information on group studies and worship, check out capitalcitychristians.com. Thanks so much for listening.